Good afternoon, everybody. Um, we'll kick off now. I'm sure we'll have dribs and drabs of people coming in through uh, the course of the session. Uh, today's subject is data. Data is all around us. When we go to the supermarket, the railway station, the restaurant, the petrol station, whenever we go online, data or the capture thereof uh, is all around us. We may not acknowledge it, and we may not like it, but in the age we live in, it's a fact of life. Every organisation in the out-of-home sector uses data, but are we utilising it properly? Are we using it to its full capacity? And how do we unlock the potential? Uh, today at Footprint Forum, we will aim to find the answers. Uh, I'm conscious, uh, just before we start, that, that a number of you here will not have been to a footprint forum before. Um, the ground rules are that this is one all about collaboration, uh, the sharing of knowledge and information. Uh, nobody's here to do a sales pitch. Uh, the idea is to benefit, benefit from each other's knowledge and, and experiences uh, and take the learnings back into our own organisations when we finally get back to them. Uh, our thanks uh, to Forth for their support today and in advance to all our speakers and panellists. Uh, but to guide you through the date, debate, uh, I would like to hand over to journalist and writer Nick Jones. Nick Hughes, sorry. Nick. Thank you, Nick. Good afternoon, everyone. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here to oversee what I fully expect to be a fascinating discussion this afternoon on data. And I've heard it said that data is as valuable as oil. Um, and I think that's wrong, actually. I think it's far, far more valuable than that, particularly if I put my sustainability hat on for a moment. We're entering an era of net zero greenhouse gas emissions targets. Now, data can get a bad press when it's used to sell us things we don't want or to target us with messages that are misleading. But this shouldn't obscure the huge potential for data to deliver improved health and sustainability outcomes, not least in the food service sector. Now, food service businesses are swimming with data, as Nick has already alluded to. Much of it useful, some of it less so. But for a lot of organisations, the ability to identify where data exists within the business and then to extract that data and analyse it in a way that generates useful business insight has historically, I think, proved quite elusive for some. But my personal sense is that things are slowly starting to change. The potential for technology to transform the way food businesses operate has been talked about for some time now. But it feels as though we're finally starting to reach something of a tipping point, whereby we're seeing the practical applications of technologies such as artificial intelligence and blockchain really come to fruition. The latest AI technology can help businesses achieve all kinds of things, whether that's mining social media posts and influencer blogs to try and unearth the latest health and well-being trends, to enable brands to measure their food waste more effectively or to provide real-time nutritional or allergen information to their customers. And the beauty of technology is that it's in a constant 
state of evolution. In recent years, as I alluded to, we've seen the emergence of technologies like blockchain, which not only promise to deliver full supply chain traceability, but when combined with other technologies like artificial intelligence and the Internet of Things, can help maximise production efficiencies and reduce food waste by massively improving demand forecasting. I'm pleased to say that we're really lucky to here today to have a range of contributors who in different ways are using cutting-edge technologies to unlock valuable business insights and bring transparency to the supply chain, and in doing so, helping businesses achieve their sustainability objectives. We've got a lot to fit into two hours, um, so I will shortly introduce our first keynote speaker. But before I do so, just a note of encouragement for you to engage with the discussion as much as possible by tweeting using the Footprint Forum hashtag up there. Um, and if you need to connect to the Wi-Fi, you can do so. Uh, the network is Firmdale, and the conference code is November, N uppercase, and the rest of the word lowercase. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce your first speaker. Patrick Renoir is business re Regional Business Development Manager at Winnow, whose cutting-edge technology is helping food service businesses unlock the data to help reduce their food waste. And Patrick is going to talk to us about the importance of data in the quest for a more sustainable and responsible food service industry. Patrick. Thank you, Nick. Hi, everyone. So I just press next, I guess. Yes. All right. Hi, everyone. So <clears throat> I'm the Regional Business Development Manager for Wino. Uh, I hope and I believe you've heard of Wino before. Um, so what is Wino? We basically bring computer vision to the kitchen, and we help commercial kitchen to reduce their food waste. Wino was launched about five years ago. By the way, it's not just a speech about Wino. I just introduced myself, and then I will talk about data and, and AI. Um, so Wino was uh, launched about five years ago in London. Uh, we want to position it ourselves as the Tesla of food waste, without the ego. You know, that's what we're trying to do. Um, a third of all food grown is never eaten. You're probably aware of that. Um, it costs one trillion every year, and our goal at Wino is to save one billion dollars by 2025 to our clients. I will take you later of how we do that by showing you a, a short video at the end. You can't manage what you don't measure. You've heard it before. Um, but basically, how do you measure it accurately uh, when it comes to the profusion of data and in this specific topic around food waste, it's really hard, uh, basically, to measure it. Um, we've seen it at Wino, but our um, partners, you know, working in different industry around the food service sector, measuring is, uh, is basically key, and getting precise and clear data is probably the hardest. So I really like this quote um, from Michael Bloomberg. You can read it, in God we trust, but for everyone else, bring data. Um, I think it's quite interesting because I don't know if you heard, but he's running for president for the 2020 election, and he, ha and he will have to do something that he rarely does, which is ignore the data, because the polls are not looking so great for him. So just to give you a bit of background, um, Bloomberg has run the most successful um, uh, data company in the past, uh, so he knows what he's talking about. 90%, so I was shocked when, that's why I'm showing you this quote, because I was really shock when I read it, and it's actually true, 90% of the data in the world has been created in the last two years. 
What does that mean? That means like we cannot handle it. We simply cannot handle it and we need tools, AI, machine learning um, to basically digest it and then to understand it. That's the food ecosystem of the past that we all know, the producer, the processor, and then that's the horizontal uh, model. Our food system has transformed, must be transformed from production to processing, distribution and consumption. We need to adjust it based on the growing population, reduce the greenhouse gas emission and also take in consideration um, our new clientele. By mean by new clientele, I mean by millennials, gluten-free, vegan, lactose-free, you name it. Um, basically, um, we need to cater for their needs and that brings a whole lot more of complexity. I came across a report from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and Google, uh, which found three areas that AI can have the biggest impact on transition to a secular food system. So talking to the previous one we were talking about. The first one is sourcing the food grown regeneratively and locally where appropriate. Local sourcing, you've all heard about it. Designing out avoidable food waste, whether it comes from packaging, but also growing like uh, food that basically won't be wasted or will have less chance to waste and then designing and marketing healthier food products by using these techniques to design out food waste they found that ai can generate up to 127 billion a year in 2030 calculated as growth in top line revenue this is absolutely massive then i'm going to talk more but i don't know if you heard about DeepMind. you probably heard about the company that based in london but um in 2016 Google implemented a machine learning system in one of its data centers. The system was called DeepMind and was able to consistently, consistent, consistently, that's a hard word, reduce the data center's cooling bill by 40% while activated. You're probably thinking, okay, why are you telling me this? Well, the thing is like that same technology could be applied to any electricity distribution network. I'm thinking for the food service about re refrigeration. Uh, in the food industry, if it's fine-tuned temperature for each perishable in storage. All factors should be taken care of in terms of weather, airflow, etc. So Google will make it, I mean that's what they say, that it will make it available um, for the wider industry in the next couple of years. Silos, uh, so basically silos, it's as you're aware of, every link of the supply chain generates food waste. Smart logistics can really improve the food supply chain by minimizing the waste, and Silos is doing that. They have developed an AI solution that leverages records and accurately determines customer needs at each establishment. Then it automates procurement and inventory management. Process accordingly, less chance product will be expired basically. Other supply chain track also uh, exist. Nick mentioned blockchain earlier. Uh, this is something that we're already seeing. Um, the customers need, obviously, need to trust what you say, and blockchain will really help you in that matter. Blue River Technology and John Deere. So I'm running you from examples that I find really useful when he talks about data in the food service industry and how is it going to change the food service industry. Uh, Blue River Technology is a really small company, only 60 staff and John Deere um, bought them for $300 million. Why did they buy them? Well, they basically are killing um, weeds. They are murder weeds with AI, with their system. And 
they only spend their money not only to kill the weeds, but ba basically it will allow all of the tractors to understand each individual plant in crops, like lettuce and cotton, what Blue River has been doing. No more human interaction. That's what it means, and really high productivity. Center is another example of IoT of things, bringing sensors into the crop. Um, that's something that in the next few years we will see in every large exploitation around the world, um, really to maximize it, and the IoT uh, will provide that, that quality monitoring. It will also tell you about um, the water, um, um, the ground, everything. It will, that sensors give you all of this information that we don't have access to at the moment. Afresh, so Afresh is a really interesting one as well. Um, they use AI to optimize fresh food, fresh food stocking, and cut grocery waste. Um, Afresh use, uses machine learning to analyze the customer data and forecast product demand. Retail managers can use the Afresh software to order the exact amount of fresh food they need. They've done a, pi a regional pilot, uh, I think it's in northern UK, and they reduce their fresh food waste um, by 50% and reduce the out-of-stock by 80%. This is absolutely massive, just by understanding uh, the trends and using that AI component to really digest the data. So Wasteless is another example. They help food retailers and suppliers to recapture the full value of their perishable products and reduce food waste through an AI-powered dynamic pricing. Their expected result reduce food waste by 50%, increase revenue by 20 and increase net margin by 3%. So I'm going to, has anyone in the audience heard of Earthcheck before? Can you please raise your hand? Nobody, OK. I used to work for Earthcheck in the past. Um, the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I used to provide CSR uh, consulting for the hospitality industry and hotels. And the synergy between the food service and the, there's a synergy between the food service and the hotel industry. Earthcheck was created probably 25, yeah, around 25 years ago by the Australian government. The Australian government wanted to promote the destination as a, I don't like the word green, but as a responsible and sustainable destination to attract uh, more tourists. And they've decided to create a conglomerate of universities to really invest in um, data around sustainable tourism, really to benchmark that. They are the only one in the world who basically have data on any type of hotels, I'm saying like boutique, resorts, depending on their climate zone, they've really spent a lot of time getting all of this data for the last 20 years. And recently, the Australian government realized, well, there's actually a commercial interest. I think the hospitality industry will be interested to have access to that benchmark. And Earthcheck was born. What Earthcheck can do, for example, if you're a boutique, that hotel, for example, what would you get if you go through Earthcheck? What kind of data they can they can show you. Well, that program can basically tell you how much energy, water, or waste you're consuming against the rest of the market. Not anyone against the rest of the market, sorry. Against your peers, against other hotels of a similar size, similar three-star, four-star, and then they will tell you how much you're consuming based on that. There will be a baseline and a best practice. So why is it useful? Well, if you don't have access to that data and you're a general manager, how do you know if you're spending more electricity than your competitor? Or how do you know if your water consumption is high or low? It's really hard to, to predict that. And data, all of the data that Earthcheck has collected over the years allow that. I'm taking this example because 
for the food service industry, we're not there yet, but this is something, the amount of that that will help us to understand. And um, I found the synergy quite, um, quite interesting. They are across 70 countries. This is, I mean, those numbers are really high. That's, you know, they, they work with around 1,300 hotels in the world leading, world largest hotel groups. They actually use us check um, to know how their asset is being managed as well. You know, owners love it because they can see basically if the management company is doing a good job in the operation or not. Uh, and all of that is to save water, energy, waste, and greenhouse gas emission. That's an example of their, um, of their reports. So this example is Banyan Tree Hotels and Resorts. Uh, it's a hotel group based out in Singapore, uh, quite very luxury actually, and uh, they've been using the system to monitor their um, water consumption. Um, again, they never had access to that data before. So the power of data for them to realize how their asset is being managed, are they going the right direction, what needs to be replaced, what investment needs to be done. So that's the power of data. And there's no AI component um, involved yet. So I'm going to show you a quick video without any sound. I'll be the, I'll be the commentator uh, of basically how at Wino we bring AI and computer vision into the kitchen. Because you're going to hear a lot about, you heard a lot already about data. Uh, but what does that mean? And how can we transform that huge amount of data uh, into tangible results? and how basically we know clients or other clients of any data uh, company can use it to, to make a reduction. So this is a camera that we have in the Windows system that basically um, track and measure every food that is wasted. Um, as you can tell, it will take a picture and then it will go to the cloud. It shows you also to the staff how much waste has been sent uh, that's also an educational one. Uh, we're the only one doing it, bringing computer vision at that scale in the in the kitchen. As you can tell, uh, it, the machine will recognize it. Usually, it takes between 400 to 1,000 operations for the machine to learn that. Um, that example is from uh, IKEA. IKEA. IKEA actually has a quite simple menu, so it really allows us to bring to automation quite quickly. It only took us six months to reach to full automation. Uh, these are the reports um, that they receive on the daily, the kitchen receive on a daily basis or on a weekly basis. Um, it could be, it's really detailed. We also ask um, the companies to enter their food cost um, to really understand how much they're wasting. Those reports can then be discussed um, around the chef and his team and really understand the performance, the patterns um, of the kitchen. So we're giving them a tool <laughs> It's not telling them you're spending, you're wasting too much or not. It's really, we give you the accurate tool to know how much you're wasting. And then they make the decision. The chefs run the kitchen, not the system. So <coughs> the limitation to data and AI solution is the data quantity. Obviously, we have we s this huge volume of data. Uh, as I mentioned in the first slide, that 90% of that data you know, wasn't there two years ago. It's, it's absolutely huge. Uh, so you need to select, and then is the quality of the data. So in that example for um, for Wino, we need to categorize and to make sure that everything that is wasted in the thrown in the bin is categorized. We actually have an indicators. Um, if they throw something and is not recognized um, by the system, or they don't um, click on the panel or the tablet what it is, then it won't be categorized. 
Um, so our customer team actually support push them to have 100% categorization because that means that we actually know what has been wasted. Uh, in the example of IKEA, they train the system because um, we talked a, lo a lot about AI and machine learning, but we're actually teaching the system. The system won't just be um, set it up and then work straight away. No, it needs to be told. It's like, it's like a kid, it's like anyone who is learning something new. And after 400 to 1,000 images, then the system would learn and then it will recognize automatically. The ability to interpret, that's what I mentioned earlier, as good as your tool can be, if, if it's not human driven or if it's no initiatives and if they don't believe in it, nothing will be done. Don't do data and AI for the sake of data and AI. AI is a buzzword. Um, yeah, so that's, that little presentation was just to show like all of the data, all of the initiatives that they are in the food service industry and um, how we could use and utilize that data to, to perform better and to reduce overall our greenhouse gas emission and to increase the productivity. So thank you for listening. Any take a seat, yeah, sure. Thank you, Patrick. Um, Patrick actually stepped in late last evening for his colleague, Philip, um, who was unable to make today. So um, just, uh, I don't think anyone would have noticed, Patrick. It was uh, a terrific presentation. So thank you for stepping in and thank you for sharing your insights. Um, Patrick will sit on the panel that uh, will follow now, but is there any immediate questions for him based on that presentation that people would like to ask. Well, in which case I suggest, Patrick, if you can return to the front and uh, I'll ask Killian and uh, Chris also to join you for the panel discussion. So our first panel uh, today introducing Closest to me, first of all, is Killian Stokes. Killian is co-founder of Moi Coffee, whose fair chain concept is pioneering a fully transparent digital supply chain using blockchain. Next to Killian is Chris Jeffrey. Chris is client services director at research and data consultancy CGA. And you've already met Patrick from Winnow. Um, so first off, I think, one of the, I, uh, just last week actually, I was reading a report from Winnow, which was talking about how AI will transform the hospitality industry. Um, and it noted that sectors like manufacturing, retail and transportation are experiencing rapid changes due to the disruptive power of AI. But also that in the hospitality industry, the change has been more subdued. So I wonder if the panel could start off by sharing your own experiences around what, um, whether you think the food service sector is ready to embrace the potential of data to drive health and sustainability outcomes, and what might have been holding back progress so far. Um, Patrick, do you want to kick off? Yeah, sure. Is it working? Yeah. Um, well, I've been at Wino, I joined Wino quite recently, and um, I was mentioning my past in the hospitality industry. I think it's, um, um, I'm going to share my thoughts on the, how hard it has been to sell 
sustainability solution to the hospitality industry. Uh, obviously, if there's no return on investment, they are not interested. Um, that's something that you need to prove. You can prove through the data. Uh, but also, there's a lot of different stakeholders involved. I'm thinking of in the hospitality industry, you need to convince multiple layers and multiple stakeholders. So I feel that in the food service industry is a bit similar. I wouldn't say it's the same. Uh, you are the expert in the room. But um, that's what has been really tricky in the past is to convince all of the stakeholders. When I'm, I'm going to explain a bit more, like when you deal with a hotel group, you need to basically convince the GM convince the director of F&B, convince the director of marketing. There's a lot, and often, sadly, the person who's after CSR doesn't have much to say. And it's still, sadly, it's still the case. I mean, a couple of years ago, um, the director of CSR was also the director of marketing. So that really shows you how they were seeing CSR. It was just basically lipstick on the pig. So, uh, and now he has change it's evolving uh, it's evolving because of us because us as a client um, the different generation we haven't talked about the millennials but uh, that's um, I mean that's a very important one and uh, there's a lot of new hospitality groups coming up and they address that and actually it it's one of their first key um, uh, messages is around sustainability and showing the data and sh because if you're not showing it well it's just greenwashing so uh, um, it's been hard uh, to sell CSR to a hospitality group. It's probably gonna, still going to be hard for the food service industry, but they are pushed by their customer to address it. So that's, uh, that's my thought on it. Great. Chris? I would uh, completely agree. I'd, I'd say in terms of just a bit of background into my role at CGI, I work with um, mainly retail brands as well, from the likes of Wagamama all the way to sort of your major pub groups. And I think in terms of... <laughs> You're suggesting that there may have been sort of a, a residence to embrace the element of sustainability, but I think we can't do that anymore based on the consumer research that we've been doing and the demand that we're seeing from the consumer. I think it's like 50% of consumers say that it's extremely important in their decision to visit a brand, and that is just extremely important. That's not somewhat important or important. So it just shows in terms of visiting the out-of-home market, having some form of sort of sustainability offer and so really promoting that, whether it's via sourcing of ingredients or, or, or food wastage, is really going to be key in that decision-making process. And again, going back to your point on millennials, when we're talking about who's actually driving this, well, it does tend to be those sort of younger consumer groups that are in there at the market, and they're the guys that eat and drink out the most as well. So when we're talking about going out, visiting, and choosing, and what are the decision factors, having a sustainable policy and being able to promote that is really going to be key in terms of engaging with your consumer groups and your target audience. Great. And Killian, you, you, Moye Coffee has a really interesting business model, different, I would su su suggest, from a lot of food service businesses. Do you want to explain a little bit about what that looks like and how important data and, um, and, and, and technology actually is in, in realising that business model? Sure. Um, uh, yeah, uh, maybe I'll, I'll throw in that first stat because I kind of, from the data, like if you think of it, we are seven and a half billion eaters on planet Earth. We are one and a half billion farmers and we are just 300 food companies and they control the global supply of food. And as you mentioned, about a third of food in, in the first world, it's 20, 15 to 25% of food rots. In the developing world, it's 25 to 50% of what farmers produce. Um, and sorry, the reason I give those stats on the farmers is one in three farmers on our planet today who work all day long to put three meals a day on our table, they go to bed hungry. They cannot feed their own uh, children and their own families. 
And the problem is with those big 300 companies and, and with the, the business model that exists is all of the value and the profit and money is, is kept at one end and, and the farmers down here are getting little or nothing. So data, I think, is key to, if we want to talk about C, uh, CSR or sustainability, if you want to protect the forests, and this is something we, we do, forest-grown coffee, you've got to ensure the people who live there uh, have a living income, that they're not chopping down trees to make charcoal and, and, and make an extra buck. So the data is key. So we, we talk about it being uh, um, story proving, not just storytelling or greenwashing or, you know, you really have to have the data, return on investment, show me the impact that me choosing this product. And so whether it's a hotel or a consumer in a supermarket aisle, uh, show me the, the difference. So what, and I'm sorry, to, uh, what we're trying to do with, we're starting with coffee, but we intend, and we're trialing it in cocoa, but it's, it's a concept, and we're not the only ones doing it, but it's relevant to so many of these global supply chains, is we want with your mobile phone in a supermarket or in a, a location, you get a cup of coffee or a bag of coffee, and before you pay for it, you zap with your phone a QR code and go, okay, who gets paid what? Show me from the farmer to the roaster to the truck driver to Mr. Tesco to Killian and the guys at Moye Coffee. How much are they each getting paid? What are they taking out of my, 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 my euro or my pound? And the other thing, so we, if you give that knowledge to the consumer, then you as a consumer can say, okay, I, I like that, that uh, share. seems fair to me. I'm, I'm happy to, to buy this product and keep going. The second thing we want to do is then again using the same technologies, once you do buy the product, is allow you to, uh, give, we give you some of your purchase price back. So rather than giving the marketing budget to George Clooney or something like that, we'll give you 25 cent back on your bag of coffee or your cup of coffee, and you can send that right the way down to tip those farmers. So you as a consumer or a stakeholder can be part of the solution to, to change that those un unfair business models. Um, and that applies with, with um, coffee, but literally everything, cotton, chocolate, diamonds, you name it. And whether it's beef farmers in the west of Ireland or in the north of England, it, it's not just about you know poor farmers in the developing world. It's, it's where does all of our stuff come from? So I'm very excited that technology, the, the challenge we have is data. You know, we live in this world with so much noise. Us in, in the consumers here in the west, so much noise. How do we make this compelling? So infographics, cool short videos, but you can't just show me a video, you've got to actually show me some numbers. So I think that's the real challenge. And I'll, sorry, I know I'm, I'll, I'll finish by how we divide it up is, we look at it as the first mile, which is the farmer up in the mountains, uh, you have the supply chain, and then you have the last mile, which is the consumer, be it in a supermarket or in a shop. And both at the first mile with those poor farmers and with the consumers, you have two challenges. You have technology and culture. Now, the folks up a, halfway up a mountain in Ethiopia might not have the technology, the base stations and internet connectivity, but it's easy enough to change the culture. You say to them, if you go digital, we pay you 20% more or 10% more, culture will change pretty fast on that front. But then the challenge at our end as consumers is we all have the technology in our pocket, but to change the culture, another app that I need to download, some more noise I need to engage with. So this challenge is on both ends, is how do we make sure the culture exists and how do we make sure that the, the technology is, is, is there? Um, I hope that's, sorry, I, I do tend to ramble, so I hope I'm not. Uh, <laughs> no, put, that me was in, put me in a box if I'm <laughs> rambling. <Thanks>. I shall. <laughs> no, that was terrific, thank you. Um, uh, given that you know, the technology exists, and I think consumer awareness that the technology exists is growing, Will that demand for traceability and complete supply chain visibility 
be the driver that forces businesses to embrace the data and the technology that, that allows them to open up their supply chains and, 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 and to show the consumer you know, that they are an open, transparent brand that does things the right way. I think it's part of it. I mean, um, that's not the only answer, um, but it's very much part of it. I mean, we've seen the um, in retail, uh, I won't name any any name of the stores, but there's been retailers that <coughs> have been, sorry, very popular with millennials, for example, and as soon as you scratch a bit on the surface, you realize that, well, they actually were doing everything against the value of those millennials. And when that crowd found out, um, I don't need to name, I'm probably you're going to know, but like um, a big brand that's always um, changing their retail or their fashion every three months, um, you know, it took a bit of time for them to understand that. I'm not saying that every generation Z or millennials will stop shopping there because obviously there's a price, there's a price point, but they will certainly in the future, if they don't address that, they will lose uh, a customer share and in the market. So uh, they've already started seeing this, like the, the reports are showing it like a, um, uh, a drop in consumption for uh, at those stores. So they will be the same for food service, you know, if they believe that that group of food services like or that restaurant is not um sourcing locally or if there's any type of scandal well good luck good luck getting back after that even you can do any marketing campaign it will be really hard um so transparency is important obviously avoid uh, the green greenwashing and all of that showing that you can uh, provide the data blockchain will be very important in that uh that's something we haven't ad addressed here i mean it's very technical but uh, I think that's the that's very much of the future, if not the present, of um, of showing that when it comes to local sourcing and all of that. So, uh, um, yeah, but that's not the only decision. Obviously, if it's too expensive, we see a lot of products that cost a lot of money, but they tell you, yeah, but it's locally sourced and everything. Well, not it's not available for the whole market, and every product started this way. It's first available to the kind of elite of higher purchaser, and then it makes it available for the wider um, audience. So, I believe it will be will be something like that. Great. Any questions from the floor? One at the back there. Um, yeah, so um, how you, you spoke a bit about um, getting the, um, the suppliers on board with using the system. Um, is there a set up cost for them to get involved in, in the first place? And how do you make that affordable for them? Yeah, and how do we make it affordable for us as well as the challenge? Uh, there's a lot of money required to build this technology. I, I just came back this morning from uh, a partner of ours in New York. There was a gala ball there, an NGO. So we're we're tapping into philanthropic money and at the moment of pitches in with Irish aid and the Dutch government and we're approaching the likes of UK aid and, and DFID and stuff. Um, there is, we need to figure out, for us, it's specifically about companies who do have a um, a theory of change, who want to tackle poverty around farmers and really want to protect the forests and the environment. So we're not really going to go into partnership with, with Tesco or Nike or, you know, anytime soon, or Coca-Cola, I don't think, in terms of our technology of the blockchain. We're not going to be greenwashing. Um, and I think those bigger companies, it'll take them, they've more challenges to get with this type of thing than a small social enterprise that's flexible and maybe doesn't have the same financial pressures. Um, 
So what we do, we need to figure out is how can we have a license fee, have all of these nice ethical brands that have a theory of change, that want to protect the environment and stuff. How do we, you know, a bit like maybe Wikipedia, do we stay with philanthropic money for, for years and keep going back to the governments and saying, hey, the reason you're paying us money is because look at the impact we're doing. Or can we get the consumer to pay like a, like a crowdfunding thing? Or it's a percentage, the brands. We haven't figured that out, but it, is, it's, it needs to be sustainable i.e. profitable, for that to, to roll. Um, if I could, just back to your point, I think there's three interesting things. I think uh, beyond data, absolutely, the product has to be world-class. So no matter your sector, the T-shirts or the coffee or the cotton has to be amazing. And we've seen in the past, ethical products haven't always been amazing. And so you buy it at Christmas when you feel a bit guilty, but if it tastes lousy, two months later on a rainy Tuesday morning, you're like, Screw the kids in Africa. I want the best coffee, and I'm gonna, you know, like you'll, you'll, you, as a normal consumer, you'll go for what's best. The second thing is price. I always love. I read about data of consumers. Sixty-five percent of consumers say they will pay more for goods that are ethically. That's total baloney. I've, you know, you have to be Tesco finest five pounds or four ninety-five. We have to be coming in at that market, you know, that or, or we have to be competing on price uh, with what else is out there. I, I don't believe we're still small so i'm not an expert on that but i i don't think we can rock into the market and say oh this is 30 percent more but it does really good you've got people of all segments still count the, the pennies at certain points you know so um i, I think you, you that challenge your product has to be world-class quality it has to compete on price and i think the third bit in terms of the greenwashing i think companies including tesco's and, and the big existing brands i think the way that they can pitch to this and you see it with Marks and Spencers and some of their plans they put out, is you can say, look, we do want to reform our supply chain. We do want to eliminate plastics or whatever. It's going to take us 10 years. We're going to screw up. So bear with us. If you, I, I, I say with us, caveat it. Say, look, this is an experiment. And particularly when you're dealing with so many moving parts or you're dealing with smallholder farmers the other side of the world, it's, you are going to screw up. And I think in the past, and this is where charities come under really strict standards, is if they, as you say, if one failing, then the brand goes. You, I, I think the way to protect against that, because something is going to fail. You're going to find out there's a dodgy supplier or they're using Roundup or there's something there going on that you're going, hang on, what's what happened here? Those mistakes are going to happen and they're real and they affect companies like Patagonia and they affect companies who genuinely want to make an impact. You know, B Corp companies, I'm sure. And I think it is best to be transparent about it. Um, but yeah, I think that's, uh, sorry, I'll shut up. <laughs> no, that's good. Chris, uh, fr from your conversations and, and your work um, with clients, what, what would you say are some of the key real life applications of data to improve health and sustainability outcomes in the food service sector that you're seeing? Um, I think there's, it's interesting on your point about consumers and trying to understand exactly what they would pay for in terms of extra you know, traceability of consumer goods. Would they, would they pay extra for that? I think what we see within the data is we do a survey of 20,000 consumers each year. It's about their eating and drinking out habits, which brands they visit. Um, so within that, we do ask questions on, on sustainability that feature there. So it's interesting to see though when you do cut that and you can see that there's like lower spending groups that actually when it looks would you spend extra they wouldn't so it's about for them when we're doing work with clients it's actually understanding who those consumers are and where is the realistic balance between traceability supply chain 
how much are they actually going to be willing to pay or, or, or will they not at all? Um, so that's some of the work that we've, we've been doing with them recently uh, from a consumer point of view. There's some really interesting stuff going on in terms of case studies that we're seeing within the market and, and sourcing ethically uh, and correctly. There's one, um, I don't know if anyone's been to the National Trust pub, which actually has the carbon footprint of uh, actual steak dishes, individual steak dishes. So there is some sort of like innovation around environment, you know, ethically sourcing of ingredients as well within that. And even EO as well, they tried to sign up to a certain commitment in relation to their seafood sourcing too. And Leon trying to have their stores as renewable energy. So it's 100% of their stores going for that. So there's... There is a movement and a shift, but like I say, it's going to take some time. We need to see what's feasible. We need to ensure what's the balance right between what the consumer wants and, and what we can feasibly do as well. Okay, great. Further questions from the floor? One over here. Um, um, this is actually a question that, which was in reference to a couple of things that Killian said, which is about culture and bringing transparency to products within the market. Now, I actually think that data within or, or a, a, gaining access to data is actually the easier part than anything actually here um, inciting change through the access to the data is the more difficult part so there's two bits here is one how do you think that you are able to get uh, a transparency across the entire supply chain all the way to the product so when a consumer is actually seeing this is where the money is going on this product the second is how do you Try, how do you think it's possible to change the consumer's behaviour to do so? When you think fast-moving consumer goods are fast-moving for a reason, it's because the uh, consumer doesn't have to think quickly about what's involved. So essentially, you know, if you're buying a coffee, you don't want to spend five minutes deciding what and where and how the coffee came about. What, in your mind, and this is a question for all three of you guys, is how can we change the consumer's behaviour to still have that fast-moving approach but you know with that transparent data and I, and I can't for one one minute imagine that the world's largest food companies would want to give full transparency on the uh, what the cost of where everything's going especially when you you look at what their bonuses may be throughout the year they're not going to put that on there they might not want to do that but it's going to happen yes. I mean so if we do and just going back to your thing two it's it's there's two bits of information we can give the consumer we can show them where the money is, is being, who gets paid what from your dollars or your amount, and where is the carbon added. So what I often think in the coffee industry, there's a lot of debates about plastic bags and packaging, and that's not where the real debate, that's not where the war is really going on. The war is going on in the mountains where the trees are. Are they still there? Are they being burnt down or not? If the tree is gone, it doesn't matter what you're bagging your coffee in. It doesn't matter. It's The game, game is over. So, uh, you know, you, there's... If coffee's in a forest, there's no. Um, there's data you can provide consumers on 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 both of those, uh, on money and on the environment, and I think consumers can fill in the gaps. So if we say you're about to buy a bag of coffee in Tesco for eight euro, the farmer got twenty five cent, the truck driver got twenty five cent, the roaster got fifty cent, Killian and Shane took a you know or Moi Coffee took a euro, and you know you add up the numbers and you get to four euro, you're like. Well, why am I about to spend eight euro? Or what's where's the Mr. Tesco and and the distributor? Those two final steps are taking huge chunks of what we as consumers pay. Um, 
And it, it, whether the if those big companies, and I don't mean to keep, I hope there's not loads of people in here from Tesco, but um, I don't mean to pick on, I shop in Tesco every week, so. Um, but uh, if those big companies do not change, it's going to be disrupted the same way that um, Airbnb or that Ryanair and EasyJet, you know, new companies, and it might not be ours, but new companies will embrace this technology and like BrewDog disrupting the, the craft beer and the beer industry, they will come in and consumers, it'll just happen, and it'll happen very fast. Um, so I, I think those big companies, they have the benefit of loads of money, but they, if they don't change, they're kind of like oil tankers, or we sometimes describe them as dinosaurs. They're either going to evolve or they'll, they'll die out. Um, that would be my... I totally agree. I like the example of <coughs> Airbnb. Because the hospitality, uh, the hotel industry was not um, as often compared the hotel industry to the um, taxi drivers with Uber. Um, they basically like storm a uh, lot of places. I'm gonna quote Paris in this example, and they hope there's no Parisian in the crowd. And um, where basically um, the taxi drivers, when Uber came in, they realized like, well, it's unfair. Um, uh, why are you doing this to us? Uh, you're not paying in taxes. It's a d whole different model. Well, we're doing it, and Uber has been successful because you didn't basically do what you were supposed to do. You know, like provide um, not I would say safe environment, but provide the hospitality as a taxi driver, having a clean cars and all of that. Well, Airbnb they went even beyond that uh, in a sense that hospitality industry they treat the customer. Um, um, in a certain way, and it's been like that for a lot of years, and they didn't want, to, they saw the change coming, but they didn't want to adapt to it. And now when you look at every hot, a lot of hotel groups, they're actually adapting to what Airbnb has been doing. So what you said about, um, earlier, they will have to change. The food service industry will have to change because it always takes like um, disruptors uh, to change it. And I don't know how long is it gonna take, but it will change. And Airbnb has shifted that with the hotel groups. I, th I think what's interesting about the Uber example you give there, I would still see people like Airbnb and Facebook and Uber as old world capitalists. It's a handful of people, mostly in San Francisco, they're taking 10% out of every taxi journey you take in London. And we've seen taxi drivers push back and they're not fans of this. And so these companies have become billionaires. But I think the next wave, because technology is actually cheap enough to, to produce. So I, I could easily see all the taxi drivers in London or in Dublin or in Prague or something, paying for and building an app. And every time you're in a taxi in London, 10% does not of your fare does not go off to San Francisco. It either goes into the pension fund for the taxi drivers or to support London NGOs and, and projects. And that's how they should respond. And and that's how they should respond. Yeah. Absolutely. But they are not dis disrupt the disruption. Exactly. And um, come back with a different... Well, look, if you go through us, I'm going to give you another example that I found... Uh, relevant again, sorry, again, ho hotel industry. Um, when you order room service um, in the in the hotel, a lot of hotels, uh, they since um, the delivery and the Uber Eats of the world, they really sh saw uh, a decrease in terms of um, room service consumption. Some hotels actually charge their client for having the Uber Eats or the delivery coming in and and dropping the food in the room. You know, they don't understand that, and they want to charge because they want to capture everything that goes into the uh, into the hotel. I don't think this is the right way to respond. Um, and what they should be promoting is like, if you actually order your room service with us, well, we can tell you where the food comes from. We can tell you how has it been sourced, how has it been cooked, um, how much we're paying. You know, I mean, you can decide how much level of transparency you think you should be providing. But you add that, and on the other on the other hand, you order Uber Eats 
or delivery, you bring additional waste, packaging, plastic, all of that. You know, the, the driver, the guy that coming with his motorcycle to come in, in to drive it. Um, so, but they don't show that. They, they, they don't, um, I haven't seen any hotels doing it in a sense like, look, if you order room service with us, you'll be more responsible. They don't do that. Uh, I don't know it's because they don't want to feel, they, they feel that they, don't, they shouldn't even be mentioning it because they believe that the room service is just so good uh, when they are not in some cases. So, uh, but that's how they could respond, you know, and uh, the same way with the taxi drivers, but sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But, and if they wait for too long, it would be too late. Um, at, at Wino, we work with some um, operations called dark kitchens. I don't know, you probably heard of it. And uh, they work with some uh, hoteliers um, because some hoteliers realize like, well, look, it costs us too much money to have our own um, kitchen uh, uh, on site. And then they have much more variety and choices by collaborating with those dark kitchens. And it brings more choices. And um, so they are already evolving. You know, they, they, they are showing new options. To, I mean, for the less traditional ones, you know. I mean. uh, yes, the lady at the back had a follow-up question, I believe. Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, I uh, was wondering whether you think, um, in the context of food service, whether there would be a time in the future when we would see QR codes, like traceability QR codes on menus, and, and how that might work. You see it on wine bottles already. I've sat slightly drunk with my brother trying to source a wine bottle from Bulgaria. We were like, where's this from? And it had QR codes on it. And, and there's a beer in Ireland called Downstream, and they have the QR code front and center. I, I think you'll have QR codes on menus. I think, you know, five or six years ago, I remember thinking, what is this QR code? Like, I was completely poo-pooing the idea. But they're such a simple thing. And you know the way your photo, you just open your camera, it's kind of becoming idiot-proof to use. And then traceability. I'd, I think you'll see them on loads of things, yeah. Chris, um, does your insight suggest that consumers want that kind of visibility when they're ordering a pizza or a, or a burger? Because I, I recall, you know, when Tesco launched its carbon label 10 years ago now, no one really used it. With consumers want everything when you pitch them a question. They'll, keep, they'll say yes to everything. Um, so it's trying to get to the crux of that. It's like the um, plastic straw in a paper... Sorry, paper straw in a plastic cup conundrum. You know, they're, they're still using um, paper straws, but they're drinking out of a plastic cup. Um, and you see a lot of this, all, all this promotion on social media. I think the transparency is going to have mutual benefits to everybody, um, particularly when you're looking at from a retailer or, or a brand, you're looking at your key KPIs, which are value for money and food quality. And if you're, the more transparent you are, the perceptions of food quality are going to go up. Uh, we did some research recently on the correlation between value for money and food quality. And the brands that were sort of falling down that correlation were the ones that are going through all the major sort of CBAs at the moment as well. So anything that you can do to sort of promote the food quality point of view is going to be crucial in terms of meeting those core KPIs and that consumer perception. Okay, terrific, thank you. Listen, I think um, we'll call a halt to this particular panel discussion for now, but can I ask you to show your appreciation for Killian, for Chris and for Patrick? Guys, if you want to return to your seats. So we move on now to our second keynote of the afternoon. And I'd like to invite Carol Evans, Solutions Director at Forth. And Carol is going to talk to us about how to harvest data to maximize your business's sustainability policies. Carol. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Uh, so good to be invited here today to speak. Um, thanks. 
So yeah, as introduced, I'm Carol Evans from Forth, uh, Solution Director predominantly around P2P and I, so Purchase to Pay and Inventory. I've been with the company for 12 years, so a very long time, um, and focused predominantly on um, working with restaurants and hotels, anyone in the hospitality industry, basically to try and um, track their goods and improve their wastage. So I'm going to talk today about um, how to harvest data to maximise your business's sustainability policies. Um, and we all know that like sustainability isn't just about food waste and it, it's not just about plastic and it's not just about CO2 emissions. They're all very much so interlinked. But I would like to focus a little bit on the food waste side of things today and I will mention uh, the other areas that impact. So my kind of a brief agenda is really what's the issue that we're looking at? Defining food waste, what we can do and, and and ultimately, how does data help with this and sustainability endeavours? So what's the issue? Many of you will know that RAP have said um, that about £2.5 billion pounds, um, was the cost of annual food waste in the hospitality industry and food service. And that's just hospitality and food service. And that's 9% of the overall UK cost. So 9% with 70% being the at-home consumers, so ourselves ultimately in the evening. So that's phenomenal figures, with 920 tonnes of, thousand tonnes of food going to in the bin, basically, of which about three quarters could be eaten, so a shocking amount. Um, and that works out to be about, per outlet, in a restaurant outlet, in, or hospitality outlet in the UK, about £8,000 annually that a restaurant or a, or a hotel outlet could save, not wasting food, which is, again, massive numbers. And there are some suggestions to say that for every... Um, what eight pounds or oh, one pound invested, I beg your pardon, you can get about eight pounds return. So it begs the question as to why people don't do more um, to track their wastage predominantly. And I think it's two reasons. So it's usually that they have no data. So it goes back to how do I know where my wastage is happening? How do I track it? And education. So listening to the panel speak earlier on and, and some conversations I had earlier in the day today, I feel like sustainability has been something that's kind of been in the background for quite a while but actually feels like it's coming into its time now. So everyone has to focus on it, not even that they want to necessarily, but that they have to focus on it. But again, it's about education and where to go and what sustainability mean for my business. So I think that's, that has a lot to do with it. Um, thankfully though, in recent years, especially to do with millennials and younger generations, um, consumers have become more um, discerning about where it is they want to eat. They want to see that they're, the businesses they're going to eat in actually do care about the environment and sustainability and traceability and, and all the rest. And there are plenty of um, like new technologies out there that, that are working towards enabling that for businesses too, to make it easier, to force the change, because that's ultimately what's going to happen. So it doesn't just make commercial sense, but should make environmental sense as well to do these. I think referencing back to even what the panel were saying earlier on around how, how are we going to get these big companies to do it, I think sustainability does need to be profitable as well. It's not something people are going to want to do. It has to make sense to do it or, or it won't continue. Um, so defining food waste. So how do we do it? Um, and there's some examples up here to say, generally in a restaurant, let's pretend it's Carol's restaurant, here's some areas that food waste will happen. So customer waste, which is the stuff that we scrape off the plate, the uneaten buffet, the food that I ordered that I thought I wanted because my eyes are bigger than my belly, um, the kitchen waste, so not cooking the food properly, poor quality ingredients or lack of production optimization, 
supplier waste, stuff that was delivered with a bad sell, bad sell by date. So I, I have to throw it in the bin or it doesn't actually, a replacement product was sent, it doesn't, it's not to my standards, I have to bin that. Um, and staff waste too, so bad stock rotations, um, ordering errors, etc. These are common areas of waste, and we all know waste does happen, but I know, and you will know, that waste isn't always tracked. So typically what will happen is somebody in the business, whether it's the chef or the manager, is told, you're allowed you to track the waste. So they go, okay, well, you know, tell me what you put in the bin tonight, write it in the list, list of piece of paper, we'll stick it in some kind of report somewhere, and then we've tracked our wastage. And the reality is that isn't nearly the tip of the iceberg of realistically where wastage is. And I believe that happens for a few reasons. So um, usually, it's about, in my experience, about 2% of the cost of food is allowed to be wasted uh, as, as a value of the percentage of the overall cost in a restaurant or, or a hotel. You're allowed to waste 2%, manager. Anything above that, and you're in trouble. So the reality is that might not even be the accurate picture. And I know f I've worked with managers who openly admitted to me that they put their 2% waste in and once it goes above 2% they put that someplace else so they put it to staff food or they put it to an account someplace else so it looks like it's not wasted it still affects the GP it still affects the bottom line for the actual restaurant but it's not something you can do anything about and if you don't track it properly you can't fix it basically um, so I think that needs to change I think the transparency the honesty the empowerment um, that, that should be given to the teams is, is the big key here I also think it's the fact of the ownership. We all need to be and own the kind of sustainability piece. And we all need to own the wastage piece in a restaurant. It shouldn't just be chef. It shouldn't just be the manager. Everybody from the kitchen porter the whole way through should be the person who owns and tracks and manages this. Waste gets missed if it doesn't affect the bottom line. So I'm going to go back to and probably bang on a small bit about the, the plate waste, so the, the fact that, you know, I've eaten it, so we've charged a customer £10 for this lovely burger and chips. They've only eaten half of it, scrape it in the bin. It's not really waste. It doesn't affect my GP, therefore I'm not going to track it. It is, though. It is significant waste. That's the stuff that actually is it's, it's money in the bin, literally. And sometimes as well, there's no easy way to track it. So it's the tracking of that waste. So how, how are we going to track the waste? Like what systems are in place to enable me to easily capture this waste that's happened? Like Winnow is a good example of an ability to do it um, without even touching buttons. Eventually, once it, it learns the pattern, there are plenty of other solutions out there as well, including forts, of course, that does enable you to track wastage as it happens. And of course, no data makes it difficult to measure and meaningfully improve any of this stuff. So I think defining it's a tricky thing around its education, its enablement, it's, it's adopting and onboarding the sustainability culture, and it's saying, you know what, we're going to be honest and transparent about it. I really think as well within hospitality particularly, having worked in it for so long and knowing that it is an iceberg that needs time to move, um, that it's also one of those, those businesses or those kind of that it's cliquey enough that actually if one person does it, other people do it, and therefore it just becomes the norm. And actually that us as the consumers, we go, oh, that's really cool, you know, this person's doing the CO2 stuff, or that person tells us they no longer use single-use plastics, or these ones are doing slightly reduced portions of food, so actually I'm eating it all without putting on too much weight, hopefully, but equally not wasting so much food either. So that's the stuff that I think will help. So what can we do? To start, we have to understand where we are. So I think without doubt, understanding where the business currently stands is absolutely the most important thing. And so that is, 
and there's an investment in that. We're asking, you're going to ask businesses, they need to invest. For example, do they have a defined sustainability mandate within their business? So do they have a mandate? And is there sustainability warriors, much like eco-warriors, that are going to own it, manage it, you know, monitor it, chase people down if they've not done what they're supposed to do, sort of thing? Does the team actually know how to um, ID what waste is and also proactively be proactive in, in reducing it? So like, there's plenty of businesses out there working towards reduced waste in kitchens. So really, really using the peelings to make other dishes, whether that's staff food or being creative and running weeks of, of reusable food as a, on a menu because you can still use all these lovely ingredients. They don't have to go in the bin. I'd like to point as well that it's not just the food waste. It is the fact that when you buy in too much, you're buying in the paper box that it comes in. You're buying in the pl plastic wrap. You're buying in the you know, the emissions it took the truck to deliver that food, the water that we waste for all of these things. For that food to end up in the bin seems such a shame as well. So it's, it's monitoring and managing that. I think getting a grasp of exactly what is wasted, but most importantly, the why. So why is this food being wasted uh, and everything that goes with it? So, for example, um, are we wasting too many potatoes because our portion of mash or chips is too big, for example? Literally managing that to say, can I therefore then reduce that portion by 5%, not taking away from the consumer's experience um, and reducing my A, my costs, and B, the wastage, which again is another cost to itself. Food that doesn't appear to affect bottom line doesn't often get focus. And again, I've said that already and I will say it again, it's the truth. Often it doesn't. A buffet, for example, if I know I've, I'm going to do a breakfast buffet in a hotel and I'm going to put out some, you know, rashers, sausages in a big pot of porridge, most people are going to go for the rashers and sausages probably, um, then the porridge goes in the bin. So it's about not again counting for that as waste, food waste. I don't, I don't count for it because, you know, it is what it is. I've made my money. So it's the traceability and tracking of that. The other thing I've noticed about the UK, um, and I suppose it's not just the UK, but I a portion size is a general thing of we seem to be becoming more Americanized in our portion size depending on the brands where it seems a quantity over or seems to be value when that isn't necessarily the case at all. Um, I personally eat everything that's put in front of me, big portion, small portion, it's not always a good thing. And if there was a smaller portion, I'd be slightly happier and eat it all and be satisfied. Um, so it is around managing that and seeing really what do consumers actually want to eat. It shouldn't, it could be about the quality as well, not just necessarily the portion sizes of it. Um, so going back to what is it we can do, so it is around um, being able to trace it. And I think education is the big part too. There are lots of um, complementary bodies that will can go into restaurants. For example, the SRA offer two-week intense courses with the kitchens in front of house to sit down and track and trace and identify for every team member exactly what's being wasted, where to give it an accurate picture to restaurants to say, well, here you are and how do you want to get to where you want to be? There's obviously a ton of technology as well these days, thankfully, um, that enable us to you know, be able to track what our food waste is. Forts, of course, does it. Um, so we've got a recipe menu engineering system that allows you from the beginning of the, the creation of the product to define, well, if I usually have waste on something, I can track it then, build it into the recipe, build it into my menu planning, build it into my buffet planning. So you've at least accounted for it and can avoid it where possible before it even gets onto the plate, which is the idea. There are plenty of other... Um, Apps like Too Good To Go and Olio as well, of course, who work with redistrib redistributing the food, which is excellent. It means it doesn't go to landfill. It does actually get out to, to people. Um, and I think that could be almost a marketable thing. I think if businesses had better information on the likelihood of the percentage of waste that they're going to have, 
based on forecast sales against what they're going to order, against what the, the dishes are, if they're well-planned, executed with kind of accurate wasted tracking. It gives them an indication of potentially what leftovers they're going to have for the olives and too good to go. And then why not, how lovely for someone to get a free meal from a, a brand that they love because it's going to be put in the bin. So, and, and what a marketable idea that is as well, I think. So there's lots of those technic technologies that can assist with this as well. Um, so, how does data help? So, accurate data mapped to a sustainable mandate, so the customer sustainability mandate, tracking the what is wasted, the where, is, where it's wasted, who, uh, who's wasting it and how, is necessary. It is absolutely necessary, not just for food waste, but for everything that it encompasses. It empowers a business to be able to see the offending areas and for them to choose their priority. Because, of course, we can't ram this stuff down people's throats. They need to make the decision about where is it I can, I can actually affect change right now? Is that get rid of single-use plastics as a starter in my business? Is it, you know, reduce my beer wastage, for example, or whatever, your food waste? So it's, it's the idea is to track that. Solutions such as Force allow data to be captured from the purchasing journey, including the packaging that's included in that product, right through to the dishes being served to the customer. There are tools that can enable teams to capture best practice before dates on perishable goods, of course, uh, and products that can inform chefs to use up these products for special staff meals. Would it, the other technolo technologies that we need to encompass here is, is forecast sales and things like that, where absolutely we need AI to inform us of predictively, here's the predictions we can see for the next whatever it is, including you know things like special events or world events that can say we think this is the impact or trends you know people love burgers one minute next thing they love fish so it's things like that that, that should be in, in, incorporated with data data and good data in particular is imperative to good decision making so again it's allowing and enabling businesses to choose what it is that's important for them and having good back-of-house systems, so technology is the way, having good back-of-house systems as well as having a community of complementary systems that integrate and share information. So I think more on partnerships. I think businesses like Forts, Winnow, Olio, anyone out there really from a technological perspective, especially if there's a complementary side to it, should work together, should become that community that actually forces the industry to make the change. I think that's what needs to happen. Um, but with all these great systems, education is the most important. I honestly think it is about education. I was just saying earlier on, I'm 38, and I mean, when I was 12, I never thought about where a plastic bag ended up, ever, ever. It was just something I didn't think about. I didn't grow up in a household that particularly thought about sustainability. It wasn't really even a thing, to be honest. But nowadays, I'm like disgusted at my own behaviour and shocked if I ever am stuck to forced to buy into a plastic bag. I'll get one of those bags for lives that cost £27 or whatever. But the idea is that, like, th that's the, the idea around the education. You know, it, it's we make lots of assumptions because we know about it that everyone else must know about it. But I don't think it is as widely kind of marketed as, as it should be. So it's about educating ourselves, educating our teams, and most importantly, educating the customer, especially in the restaurant industry and hospitality industry. We all understand that sustainability isn't just uh, about the food that goes in the bin. It is about everything else that tied into that. I do believe the hospitality industry has the power to actually make the change that's needed. Yes, we're only 9% of the overall from wraps figures overall cost, but I actually think it's it's around habit and it's around if everyone was in their restaurant advertising, look at all these wonderful things I'm doing, 
it would just sink in and I think the consumers would change so that you'd get the 70% us in this room going home and menu planning and meal planning or weeks where possible and buying when things are in season and avoiding single-use plastics um, and hopefully, you know, take personal um, kind of ownership of our sustainability, our own sustainability endeavours and that's how I think data can help. Thank you. Thanks very much, Carol. Um, again, Carol will be joining the panel discussion that follows, but are there any immediate questions based on that presentation? Over here, David. Oh, sorry. We need four microphones down the front now, so please project as much as you can. It's enablement, it's, it's adopting and onboarding a sustainability culture and it's saying, you know what, we're going to be honest and transparent about it. I really think as well within hospitality particularly, having worked in it for so long and knowing that it is an iceberg that needs time to move, um, that it's also one of those, those businesses or those kind of, that it, it's cliquey enough that actually if one person does it, other people do it and therefore it just becomes the norm and actually that us as the consumers, we go, oh, that's really cool, you know, this person's doing the CO2 stuff, or that person tells us they no longer use single-use plastics, or these ones are doing slightly reduced portions of food, so actually I'm eating it all without putting on too much weight, hopefully, but equally not wasting so much food either. So that's the stuff that I think will help. So what can we do? To start, we have to understand where we are. So I think, without doubt, understanding where the business currently stands is absolutely the most important thing. And so that is, and there's an investment in that. We're asking, you're going to ask businesses, they need to invest. For example, do they have a defined sustainability mandate within their business? So do they have a mandate? And is there sustainability warriors, much like eco-warriors, that are going to own it, manage it, you know, monitor it? Thank you. Thank you. So I think it'll be, um, so Ford want as many partnerships as possible, especially around supplier-distributor side of things. Um, and I think as well, like, we already capture allergens and nutrition within product um, set, for example. Um, and we partner with people like Trade Interchange who are specifically around supplier compliance to capture things like, are these, you know, not necessarily the chicken uh, fed soy, but it might be around, you can ask those questions of those suppliers. And that information can be captured and tracked and traced. Because I think traceability is a big thing, uh, especially around what the consumer needs. So I don't know if there's a latent impact of chicken eating soy to whether someone's gonna have an allergic reaction to it or not. But I don't know is the answer to that one, probably not. Yeah, <laughs> but the idea is that yeah, Ford's whole goal is to partner with as many kind of complementary solutions as possible, where we will very much so focus on back of house. Um, so the, the, the restaurant manager, the, the chefs kind of, um, what they need to do, but if there's the supply chain side of it, anyone we can partner with on that, we absolutely will, around where traceability is. And from a reporting perspective, we have Forth Analytics, which we love taking third-party feeds into. So the more information uh, someone has, and you can you know, correlate data to itself, you, that's, that's the goal for Forth, ultimately. I hope that's answered the question. Good, thanks. Thank you. We've probably time for one more question specifically to Carol, if anyone has one. Or otherwise, I'll invite our second group of panellists to come forward and we'll uh, kick off the discussion. Great, so next to Carol we have 
Claire Yates. Claire is Director of WaterScan and a leading expert in water conservation and cost control. And then next to Claire, we have Julie Barker. Julie is Business Engagement Specialist from RAP. And finally, on the end, we have Peter Backman, and Peter runs his own consultancy on the eating out of home market. So perhaps to kick off, and, and Carol, I'm happy to excuse you from this, given your presentation just now. Um, can I start by asking the panelists to provide one example from your own experiences of where the use of data is helping drive positive sustainability outcomes? Claire, perhaps you can kick us off. Loads of those. I think I'm in a really fortunate, I feel like I'm in a really fortunate, blessed position today. It's not normally normal that I think that about my job. But you've been speaking about CSR and the challenges within the hospitality industry. And actually the people that I work with in the hospitality industry and food service are really innovative and sustainability is at the forefront of what they do, um, which is why I work with them. Um, and I can give lots of examples, but um, probably uh, the best, I'll give a retail and a hotel example. So uh, retail example is uh, Sainsbury's triple zero stores. So they do zero water, zero waste, zero carbon. And we work with them to deliver that. And the data that we utilize for that is understanding benchmarking their sites. So understanding what their facilities use and then offsetting by using data from the local aquifer and the sources that that water comes from. And then also working with the local community by engaging and understanding what that community wants to see within that locality. So that's huge because that's really bespoke. It's a nationalized program, but it's a local solution. And we couldn't do that without data. And in the hospitality sector, um, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about pubs later. So hotel sector, how many litres per room, which you showed earlier with Earthwatch. Um, and actually how much of that needs to be potable water. So grey water recycling, taking showers and baths and doing that. But taking the data and looking again at the locality and saying which, which sites are in water stressed areas, which should they prioritise first? We couldn't do that without the data. Thank you. Hello. Um, in respect of the work with RAP, I'm currently working on food waste reduction plan within the um, hospitality and food service sector. And the data actually has been varied. Um, there's some great data out there and there's some um, not so great data out there. I think as we've muted um, in, in all discussions this afternoon, actually, that different businesses are in different places on this journey. And at one level, some of the large national organisations have got great data through their software systems on food waste, um, on tracking, on products. And we're currently looking at end-to-end -end, um, food waste reduction plans for uh, commodity areas with some of those, some of those um, HAFS hospitality um, providers. But at the other side of it, we've actually got large organisations out there that actually have no data and we are looking at almost back to basic solutions of uh, luggage, luggage scales weighing food waste. So we've got um, a whole mix across the industry. And I think, as we've said today, uh, um, the industry is in different places. Different parts of the industry are in different places. Um, the software solutions available are wide and varied um, and utilised in, in different ways across the industry. So it's, it's challenging within the hospitality and food service sector. I did want to pick up on uh, one point that we talked about um, earlier, which was around um, expectations, consumer expectations. Because I think one of the things that uh, through 
uh, research that I've been involved with looking at the 18 to 25 age group and I'd concur with what the other panel said that actually there's an expectation that they want the ethical they expect there's an expectation there wherever they eat, wherever they go that they're eating sustainably that the organization is um, environmentally friendly but they don't want to pay a premium for it so in in that respect I think actually there is an absolute expectation on that age group that that is what they expect and it shouldn't come with an additional price tag great thank you Peter um, you've asked a tricky question it's my job um, and I don't think I can answer it actually but I'm going to take my my sort of lead from Julie to say that the um, the actual examples are probably very good and very um, really work, but there's an awful lot that that doesn't. It's not applied. People just don't think about it. And I think um, I'm going to say I'm not going to answer your question. I'm going to give you the politician's answer and say what your audience really want to know is um, um, where are the where are the the core points? Of what are the the core issues that um, people can address that are going actually going to make a difference here. Um, I'm, I'm not going to bang on about, about things, but I think there's a, there are huge contextual things about this industry that need to be borne in mind. Um, one is absolutely um, people um, increasingly want to have ethical stuff, sustainable, whatever. On the other hand, the industry itself, food service, 11 letters, only four of which are food, seven are service, and service by its nature is inefficient. So we're in an industry that is fundamentally um, inefficient, and how can we impose on it efficiency about, about wastage and about all these other issues? Okay, great. We've, we've spoken a lot today about supply chain data. Now, some of the most disruptive players in our market, I would suggest, are businesses such as the likes of Just Eat and Deliveroo and Uber Eats that are not really food service companies. They're actually software companies. And their currency is data. And I wonder to what extent the panel feel as though in the future those kind of businesses might use their data and their influence to drive more sustainable behaviours amongst consumers, amongst people who are food service customers, either by nudging them towards healthier options or by working with their with small independent businesses to encourage more sustainable behaviours. Is that something that you think we could see more of in the future? I definitely do. Um, I think if they had the brain switches switched on, which I'm sure they do, they'll easily be able to use analytics to, to see and trend what it is people are asking for and looking at, even if they don't order it, to be able to see what they looked at before they made the decision and maybe use that as to the, the why. You put, I mean, I order from Just Eats the odd time, um, but you, you get to see, like, you've put quite a bit of information in about yourself. And it's and I mean, it's easy enough for them to get more from data mining, get more information about me, potentially to know my age and my demographic and the rest of it. So that I think that will prompt behaviours within the hospitality industry. But I actually wonder if it's the cart before the horse, the horse before the cart, as in, you know, what ca what came first a bit, chicken and egg sort of thing, where I don't know if it's they're using the information they, they see or they, they could manipulate that information to direct a little bit, because, of course, we're all 
easily, you know, influenced by advertising. Um, so I do absolutely think that that's what will happen. And it could be a trend thing. And actually, it's potentially an opportunity for, for the likes of Deliveroo and Just Eat as a platform to do something really helpful to improve kind of the overall awareness of sustainability and, and, et and ethical sourcing of, of food, etc. Yeah. I think they're just a means to an end, actually. Um, I'm not sure that they particularly will inform the um, consumer. What I do think is, though, that the, the chains themselves, if we're talking a chain, a restaurant, an SME, they should be the ones that look in at how they can nudge the consumer uh, with their messaging. And it could be simple stuff. It could be that we are engaged in a food waste reduction plan. We want to, we're considering the environment. If you don't want your, if you want your bag bunless, ask for it bunless, don't be afraid. I think we, um, some brands are really good at that. There's a, the leading burger chain on the high street, takeaway option. And there's a leading pub chain that are very good at customization. But there's a number of brands where it's a set, you know, you've got a set narrative and that's what you get. So I, I think there should be, we can message on menus that allows the consumer to think about actually, do I want that salad garnish with that dish? Do I want that burger with the bun or without the bun? Because actually when you look at some restaurant chains, the majority of the waste in their bin is the salad garnish. So w it's on there to make a dish look pretty predominantly. Why? So I think we, we as a, you know, we talked about earlier on, 70% is consumer um, waste, food waste. Um, and I think we can start within the hospitality sector, within those eating out areas, to actually start to nudge and influence the consumer. Because I think that's exactly what's happened with the coffee cups, the plastics, other highly topical sustainability areas. That's where it started with that nudging of the consumer and just highlighting the issues. And I think we should be doing the same across the industry on food waste. Okay. I mean, addressing your point, Nick, I think um, the, uh, the delivery companies have got huge um, backers with vast amounts of money involved. And they're going to, f they're going to um, f basically follow um, what a route which allows them to maximise the, their businesses. I'm not just going to talk about profit, but the business as a whole. And if that means that there is uh, money to be made out of sustainability, reducing waste, all that, they'll do it. Um, and they, they have the opportunity or the possibility of doing it in a big way because I think delivery is not only, um, what we refer to as delivery, is not not just a restaurant business. It's going to um, uh, merge with uh, what supermarkets are doing. Um, so um, I, I, I don't think that they're going to take a, a view which says, well, you know, we've got a mission here they're going to follow what is um, practical and, and beneficial for the business. Um, hopefully, it'll be in the right direction, but there's no guarantee that it will be. Okay. Claire, did you have a yeah, view on I, this? I agree. Um, it's consumer-led and profitability is key. So um, whether it has a benefit to the business to grow to attract more customers from a health perspective or whether they're at risk of losing to other competitors, I think with those particular examples that you gave would be the driver. Um, but I am a bit of a cynic. Uh, when uh, I think data is fantastic and, and gives people the ability to do lots and lots of things. Um, 
uh, and whether people always use it in the right way necessarily, uh, um, we see a lot of practice of that not happening. Okay. Questions from the floor? Surely there must be one or two. Yeah, can you? Cool. So next to Carol we have Claire Yates. Claire is director of WaterScan and a leading expert in water conservation and cost control. And then next to Claire we have Julie Barker. Julie is business engagement specialist from RAP. And finally on the end we have Peter Backman. And Peter runs his own consultancy on the eating out of home market. So perhaps to kick off, and, and Carol I'm happy to excuse you from this given your presentation just now. Um, can I start by asking the panellists to provide one example from your own experiences of where the use of data is helping drive positive sustainability outcomes? Claire, perhaps you can kick us off. I think I'm in a really fortunate, I feel like I'm in a really fortunate, blessed position today. It's not normally I think normal that I think that about my job. But you've been speaking about CSR and the challenges within the hospitality industry and actually the people that I work with in the hospitality industry. I think if, if, you, if you're a restaurant and you're saying, well, we're going to give our customers smaller portions, immediately you have a problem because the guy next door isn't. Uh, so th there is a competitive space in, in the restaurant market and the eating out market generally. Um, uh, however, the, the consumers are able to um, exert their own uh, views on on what happens. Um, it's not it's it's not a um, it's not a foregone conclusion. Um, uh, what what's going to happen in in any direction? Um, but there are an awful lot of games to play here. And, and I think what you're suggesting is, is just, it's a nudge. It's a small nudge because somebody will do it, a number of people will do it. The vast majority of, of eating out places won't. I, I think, sorry, to, I think if your motive as a business is I want my customers to be better off in the long run, then yes, reducing portion size or doing something different or convincing them that it's going to take a little bit longer to provide your cup of tea or your coffee because we're, we're doing it more sustainably. I think you will win. The challenge is how do you communicate that, as you would at a household level. Um, well, I, um, I think there's also a big timing, um, a big issue about the time it will take to get to that point. So, um, I, sorry, sorry, I, I think education's massive uh, and educating the consumer is the biggest driver, certainly for w in water for me. So the fact that we're going to have a deficit of supply versus demand by 2030. That um, The biggest thing we see in the food service industry is um, there's no responsibility and they don't understand how much the water costs. So defrosting chickens in sinkfuls of water, continually running things through products and... And actually, we did an exercise um, in a couple of restaurants and, and in pubs where we related the waste, the water waste, to things that meant something to the people within the kitchen. So to the lady who's continually defrosting the chickens, do you realise that actually the volume of water you're using means that your grandchildren might not have water by this year? Uh, and giving them hard facts that they cared about 
that made them then take that passion into the into the kitchen and become the champion of that environment and change their behavior so i think the the data and using that and using that insight into the customer is is huge and it does it's been proven to change behaviors we've seen it in loads of loads of walks of life yeah i think that smart narrative there has to be a smart narrative around there and that will gradually make the change but you're right that that, that is one of the issues we're facing in the high street um in in the half sector is that actually smaller portion sizes or the brand development team saying i can't take off my salad garnish because next door's got a salad garnish on theirs or it makes the plate look better looks better value for the consumer so i think we just need to spin the narrative for the consumer that 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 will then lead the charge on the change I think going forward. I agree and I think it is about changing, it's changing the messaging so I get it, so like if, if brand A of pizza has you know, extra cheese and brand B doesn't, then you, people think they want to go to A but I think if the messaging is the right message and it means something to the consumer they might choose the one that's got the good message, the one that says you know have this one, it's you know 10% less for argument's sake but you also have the option to upsize if you want for an extra 50 pence so it's not taking choice away, but it is, it's, it's giving even more choice, but putting that choice back to the consumer to say, you know, for example, with the reducing of portion sizes, we're going to take 10% off the entire dish, and we're not going to reduce the price by 10%, because it might give it a weird, weird rounding, for argument's sake. But you have the option to up, to make it a large. How many people will go for that? Because I think that's, it's, a, it's a choice thing, rather than saying portions need to just get bigger, how do we compete with our competitor? The, figure out other ways of competing then that means sustainability can take the forefront on it yes okay so i'm, I'm now going to be a politician again and completely change my my point because the other point i was going to make was uh plant-based has sort of crept out of or come out as, as like an express train out of nowhere mm -hmm. um and it it resonates with everybody um uh, varying degrees of plant-basedness um, and people see it as being um, a good thing to do. Um, I would argue that abso it's absolutely a necess necessary thing to do because ultimately, if the world carries on growing at the rate it is, it's not and demands the meat that it currently demands. It's just going to uh, n we're just not going to be able to grow enough meat. So uh, self-interest is saying we should be vegan. I don't know if that is a driver, but it's a good it's a good thing, uh, and it's coming at us from who knows where. Well, plant-based is an example, is it not, of a trend that is actually data-driven. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the it's the awareness of the environmental impact of <coughs> livestock production that really is only developed in the last five or ten years through more detailed life cycle analyses that's allowing people to make the link between the two. So actually it's a good example of how data um, environmental indicators can drive wider trends in the food service sector and there, there will likely be more in the future. I think it's a really interesting one. I've been, worked in the higher education sector for a number of years. That was very strong a decade ago. So actually it's, it is coming through and it isn't a phenomenon at the moment. Um, I mean there's a, there'd be an interesting session here around the relative merits of that because I, I totally agree with you but then there's a lot of very trendy plant-based crops that are not grown in the UK so the, there's an issue there but actually going back to the food waste question 
You could spin it another way and say, actually, that in where businesses and clients are tendering for caterers, that actually, if, if it's an inclusion as part of that tendering specification, that that company has to be UK Food Roadmap compliant, then actually you're changing, you're changing it. You're changing the story because all of a sudden it's an imperative for that company to be involved and to have signed up and be committed to a, a journey on food waste reduction. And so you could, there's a number of ways of spinning this, but there's a, a lot around that kind of nudging and messaging. So you could come at it from different ends of, uh, the, of the supply chain. And we see that in the retail sector, you know, with Marks and Spencers saying that their food manufacturers have to have certain levels of sustainable policies. Mm. So hospitality is generally behind retail actually so this is part of it even the food service piece that you were saying the service bit's the hard bit it's how do we f enable this change to happen without impacting or adding more work to the actual service side of it as in or it becoming just habit and pattern and easy to use and I, technology does help with that um, it shouldn't hinder it and that's the goal really so that you get the data and it, it's people's second nature to do this stuff and record it so we can use that information to make better decisions and how do we actually affect change with trends and get the consumers to take adapt those changes at home ultimately. And that's the key is using the data, yeah. not ticking the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And caring about it. Yeah. I want to just interrogate the the link between the data and the tangible results because we've talked a lot about how much data is swimming about in food service businesses. So let's put that in one bucket over here. And then in another bucket, you've got your CSR objectives around food waste reduction, greenhouse gas emissions, water use, etc. How do you get from that one bucket of data to the bucket of hitting your CSR objectives? Because a lot of that data is not going to be any use to you. So how do you get the visibility of the data that is useful and then use it in an effective way? I, th I think the... Um thinking about some of the national companies who use their food waste data to plan their food waste reduction plan for the following year and that they would target a percentage reduction year on year which has a, a financial benefit to the company so they would use the data um, in that way I think across the industry we've got even last year I just plucked a figure off, off the WRAP website on a 180% increase in surplus food redistribution last year alone which um, equated to 133 million meals that was back into the system. We would, um, our starting point is testing and validating the data first and foremost, taking a, a set, a, a data set and working with that first and knowing that that data is robust and has been validated to such an extent that you can then use that as a baseline to then carry across. I think the the most critical part in, in what I do, certainly from a water perspective, is not just dealing with the sustainability director, but the operations director, the property director, and actually, you know, the guy at site, um, because water is obviously very different because they might have the same facilities, but they might have different pressure going into the building, different source, different quality, and all of those things that come with it. So um, starting and testing uh, that and then testing some, doing some baseline scenarios and checking things out before we ever, ever roll anything out. Okay, great. Um, Julie, how important is collaboration between industry peers? I mean, that's that's part of the approach that RAP's taking at the moment, so sort of sh the sharing of knowledge, if you like. 
Um, how important will that be going forward? Uh, hugely important. I think it's influenced a number of companies up and down the supply chain um, to work with us, uh, work on the food waste, but also actually it then enables us to work with their clients, the waste um, waste companies as well. So and the likes of Winnow and various others, Lean Path, other organisations. So up and down the both the supply chain and cutting across the industry as well, and procurement organisations as well. It's conversations we had there about specifications, etc., on sustainability in food waste. Mm. So collaboration is, yeah, very key. I mean, I think this is fundamental in this particular industry, which uh, employs, depending on whose numbers you want to use and whether you're talking about hospitality or food service or whatever, somewhere between one and three million people. Uh, there are um, hundreds of thousands of businesses involved and driving change through that complexity uh, where you've got people making decisions uh, on the spur of the moment. Um, it, it, the, uh, the, I guess the only process is some sort of collaboration, just making sure that... Um, uh, as, as many elements of the, the net, uh, um, not, I'm not talking about the internet, I'm talking about the spider's web, um, how much of that is, is connected. And this industry is very, very good at that. It really is because it talks. People talk to each other in the industry. Um, I've been told that everybody has sacked everybody else in the industry, but that's another point. Um, so the um, uh, communication... Um, having ideas, um, thrashing them out, is one route to going from, here's a bit of information and here's what I do with it. Because people look at success and say, that was successful, I think I'll do it in my business. Okay. Can I just add mm. just one positive on that, actually? I've seen positive the audience, because we've mentioned them a few times. Uh, there's some great work going on with Tesco's and Tesco supply chain. <laughs> so they are actually um, uh, leading a charge, really, on collaboration with RAF at the moment. I think if the uh, suppliers are willing to uh, contribute financially to those tables, do know of them, they're very clever, very smart, but it's reliant on the, uh, suppliers buying into them to wrap the messages um, around, but a very smart concept, them tables. I think the bathroom thing is really good too, actually, because you're ultimately a captive captivated audience as such so what you do except read the messages on the wall um, so it's actually quite clever even and then cheaper than getting those enamel tables they've used them for about 12 years actually I think 13 years so they've been around for a while but though they can tell little stories so actually it, it would be one of those things that would probably need to be a trend to catch on but I, I can see things like that kind of how do we market out to the consumer what we're doing as a business to you know be sustainable and make it better for the consumer at the end of the day and their kids and grandkids, etc. So I think yes. Any further questions from the floor? We have about 10 minutes remaining, maybe less. So speak now or forever hold your peace. Or any comments even, how people are using data within their own businesses that perhaps we haven't covered as yet? At the back. Here's a, here's a statistic, here's a number. Um, and I don't have the real proof, but I, c I can give you some reasoning behind it. 
the US market throws away, the US food service market throws away as much food as we consume in the UK food service market. Um, so um, I, it doesn't really answer your question, but it was an international comparison. Um, I think um, I, in many respects, the UK food service market is a, um, a leader, is maybe pushing it a bit strongly, but certainly um, out in the front and doing things that other people aren't yet doing. Um, each, in my experience, each food service market around the world has very much its own characteristics because it's fundamentally a cultural thing. Um, but I think the UK is probably reasonably advanced in, in most respects. And therefore, I would assume, in answer to your question, that it's probably reasonably advanced when it comes to the issues that we're talking about today. Um, I'm ready to be shot down. Yeah, I'd agree with that. But I mean, referencing what Killian said, you said earlier on about food waste uh, in uh, in the undeveloped world is about 25%. In the first world, in it's 15 to 20. Uh, it's got to be four markets. Oh, fine. In the farms yep. So it'd be fair to assume it's probably the same within the actual industries themselves, I imagine. I've only worked myself in South Africa and Ireland and England in hospitality. Um, and I worked with some US customers. And there's a capitalism on who the suppliers are in the US. So they they get away with a, quite a lot of potentially non-compliant stuff, UK equivalent compliancy, um, because it's their own governments. And I know that in South Africa, it's it's not. I worked in restaurants there. It's not nearly as advanced as let's say the UK. So I would think the UK is. I'd agree to your point. Probably one of the leaders, and mostly I think because it's a really small industry. Even though there's like loads of restaurants, it's actually small knit because everyone's worked everywhere. So it everyone does tend to move together eventually. Um, so if someone jumps, everyone follows, sort of thing. Whereas I don't know that it's the same in other countries. But again, that's speaking from my own experience. So, yeah. Great. Thank you. One further question, just to round things off. Um, where data is not being fully exploited to its potential, what do you see as the main barriers within businesses to doing that? Is it cultural? Is it to do with cost? What is it? Succinctly, please. <laughs> Um, I think uh, food waste across the uh, industry, um, competition, where they're seen against the benchmark, fear. If they was to find out a particular business was, I don't know, 20% food waste and a competitor was half that, I think there's, there's a level of concern and nervousness across the industry as to um, supplying publicly data on food waste. From a water perspective, it's cost. Um, it's free. We've always got it. People turn on their tap. They expect to get it. There's, there's no, nobody ever thinks that we're going to be without water. And in fact, the biggest challenge that we face now in the UK is the flooding, uh, rather than drought risk. So um, it's a tenth of the cost comparable to electricity and gas for any of the businesses that we work with, unless they're hugely water intensive in the food manufacturing side. And, and actually the likes of Tesco's and Sainsbury's, we do a lot of stuff on the supply chain across the globe. Um, but in the UK, it's not seen as necessary. Um, 
And, you know, water's a pound to five pound a cubic metre. It's it's not excessive. So there'll be a focus in areas where it costs more, um, not necessarily areas where there's a drought risk. But that changes when you've got the data. But um, uh, cost comes first for many people to even get it on the agenda at a board meeting. So I think time and cost actually kind of t together. I recently had a meeting with a customer who specifically say they don't they didn't so there was one of the things they they weren't going to do certain functionalities because they didn't think see the point of it even though it's something that is um would improve their costs uh, around tracking stock um simply because it wasn't high end value items but actually at the end of the day that's still that it, to them it was around um proficiencies or, or for their teams to not have to waste time doing something they didn't think was worthwhile so sometimes it is around how costly of time for your employees is going to be to manage this entire new kind of concept of tracking it from beginning to end. And then the cost of having to do something with that information. Because there's no point just getting it and then looking at it and not deciding to do it. You're going to spend money on it, but ultimately you should get the return. So I think it's both. I think in this sector, particularly, um, uh, the collaborative piece that you touched on earlier and people working together, we don't see that in the retail sector. Sainsbury's don't like to talk to Tesco's and they don't like to talk to M&S, but it is unique in this sector. And um, we have, and actually, um, very much driven by the customer. So the stuff that we've obviously seen with plastics and plastic straws and the pubs and, and the restaurants, um, and from a water perspective, um, Green King were the first to go self-supply when the market opened. And Green King, Marston's, Whitbread and Stonegate pubs are part of a self-supply community and they get together every quarter and they drive change on fat oils and greases and water quality and consumption. And, uh, and that's quite unique in this sector, I think. Mm. I'd like to see much more of it. Um, the the, the uh, barrier is, is cultural. This industry is about hospitality. And hospitality, as I said before, by its nature, is inefficient. So the industry is fundamentally inefficient. And it's, if you like, our job just to give it a certain element of efficiency. But it's a cultural issue. Terrific. Thank you. Well, can I ask you to show your appreciation to the panel, and actually to all of our contributors today. Right, so um, we're pretty much at the end of the discussion. Just leaves me to say a few words in summary. Um, Patrick, at the very start, gave us a statistic to really focus the minds that 90% of the data in the world has been created in the past two years, is that right? Which just strikes me as mind-boggling. Um, and it speaks to the volume of data that exists within any business today. Um, and I think we've heard that the key for businesses is to take that data and convert it into tangible results. And Patrick and Carol both provided us with a great example in, in food waste of a, of a watertight business case. Um, for using the data you have more effectively. If you can understand how much food you're wasting, then you can start to interrogate why you're wasting it, and you can reduce the waste and save yourself money. It, it seems like a no-brainer. But we also discussed beyond that, beyond the obvious business case, that technology is enabling us to provide more transparency than ever before to consumers. Um, and some businesses like, like Moy Coffee is basing their entire business model on fairness and transparency. 
Um, and as consumer awareness of these kind of business models grows, I think we're likely to see pressure on more businesses um, and larger businesses to follow the lead and, and, and to really become quite transparent about the footprint that they're leaving on the world. Um, and I'm going to leave you with one thought from a, an event I went to last week, actually. It was a rubber bank innovation event. And one of the businesses was uh, a personalized nutrition company. Um, and they were a startup 3D printing personalized vitamin stacks based on information that customers provided to them about their own health requirements. Um, and my, I came away from that thinking, we're probably not too many years away from you going into your place of work, particularly as a blue chip company, and having a little vitamin on your desk to greet you, tailored to your specific health needs that improves your own well-being and in turn drives your performance. I think that data is going to impact every single facet of how businesses operate in the future, including food service businesses. And we should all be prepared for the change that is taking place. So thank you to everyone for attending today. Um, thank you to Forth, our sponsors. There will be some refreshments um, outside, uh, a tipple for your journey home in the room on the right-hand side, I believe. Is that right, Nick? Um, so thank you again for coming and have a safe journey home.